Hello church, Pastor Michael coming at you um, with the sermon for this week. We had some technical difficulties and I'm here recording um, yet again uh, so that we can continue in our series. I don't know, you tell me. We're continuing um, in the book of Malachi uh, with the series I just mentioned. And what we've seen is this dialectic writing style and we see that God is having this discussion back and forth um, between uh, his people and himself. But the interesting thing is God doesn't have to wait for the response. God knows the heart of his people and is answering for them on their behalf exactly how they would answer and is ultimately challenging their thought process, their way of living, and their lack of worship by getting them to come to the conclusion themselves. God's not simply giving the answer, but um, making his people become the student um, as a good rabbi does, and getting them to come to the answer, do a little bit of homework, think a little bit about what is going on so that they can truly learn and be changed by the situation they found themselves in. And some of the, the backstory and history and context of Malachi that we must understand is we read through books like Ezra and Nehemiah where we see the rebuilding of the temple and of the walls and, and even in Haggai, um, really a call for restoring the hearts of the people, rebuilding the heart of the people at that very same time. But Malachi were placed 100 years roughly after all of this, and they've fallen back into the lackadaisical worship that they're um, ancestors had found themselves in, and they've lost that revival, they've lost that spark, and they've truly lost the memory of what God had done for them and their people up until this point. So today we're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through uh, 16, and I'm going to read the, the text for us before we um, continue on, but I, I really want us to be thinking about this text and and as God's people today, if you're a believer in the gospel, um, this should be a challenge for us um, to really begin thinking about um, faithful living, or maybe we're living faithlessly, we're, we're not trusting God, and um, a, a situation we're in uh, that truly is temporal um, in the grand scheme of eternity. Um, but be thinking about faithful or faithless living, um, and maybe be challenged by whichever way you think you may be living. But Malachi 2 verse 10 picks up and says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in, the, in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. That's God's word for us today, church. Let's be in an attitude of prayer. 
Father God, I pray that you would you would be with us um, in this time as we move through your word and and um, we come to you in expectation of being changed by your word also. So we pray that your spirit would um, work inside of us, um, convicting us, um, yet at the same time as you, God, always do, encouraging and comforting your people, um, even in our feelings and moments of despair, but ultimately we come to you uh, to be sanctified by your word today. So we pray that you would teach us, lead us not in our own understanding, um, but learn to to seek and follow and do as your will um, would have, Lord. So thank you for sending your son to die for us, and thank you for all that you do for us each and every day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, church, so when we look at this text, um, specifically this passage, Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16, um, I really want us to begin to think about this main point for us today, and that's that faithless living produces tasteless fruit. Faithless living produces tasteless fruit. One thing that we understand is that as Christians, we, we must bear um, bear fruit, bear good fruit at that. Everybody bears fruit of some kind, right? We've got our roots um ingrained, um, really deeply um, connected and some kind of source, soil, some kind of foundation. Um, But as believers, um, we are rooted in Christ Jesus and must bear fruit um, that is um, coinciding with what his word says, that it's rooted in that and therefore it's springing forth um, the things which God would want us to spring forth and to do and to represent, um, ultimately, that he would receive the glory from that, because we're not living as ourselves anymore, but we're living as as Christ, um, who sent his spirit to indwell in us as believers in the good news. So faithless living produces tasteless fruit. And Matthew Henry says it this way, um, if he were uh, speaking at our church today and, and wanted to revise it, uh, he says this, corrupt practices are genuine fruit and product of corrupt principles. And what he's getting at here is is that it's come from the top. Last week we looked at how the priests were not doing what the priests were um, given a, a job to do, their very job to, to oversee and, and lead people into worship, um, to, to guard and keep an eye on the sacrifices and to present those to God, to make sure that they, they followed in line with exactly how God's word demanded sacrifices be given to himself. So he says corrupt practices are genuine fruit and product of corrupt principles. So the priests have really set the tone here, and you can go back if you didn't, and you can listen to last week's message um, when we went through the beginning of uh, Malachi 2, and we saw that the, the priest, and even at the end of chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 2, that the priests were not doing um, what they should have been doing. Uh, they were not guarding the offerings. They were living corruptly, and corruption had seeped into the people's way of living too. So what we're getting here is faithless living produces tasteless fruit. And supporting points I want to look at as we flow through this this text today is relationships, repentance, and refrain. And as we progress through that, we'll be reminded of the main point and even uh, see the main point grow in strength um, and our understanding that faithless living produces tasteless fruit. First point is relationships. This is the very first thing. And we, we go back to uh, what we've already learned um, in Malachi, and that's the first relationship that's distorted, and that's really what we're talking about here with relationships is um, that relationships become corrupt, um, especially when our relationship with God is corrupt. And that's what we have learned thus far moving through Malachi is that the people's relationship with God has been distorted. 
And church, really, that's why we exist as a church. Um, and truly, all churches, uh, even though we phrase it this way, but we as a church, New Hill Church, and every person who is a member here is committed to this this mission of putting Jesus into perspective because we understand that our sin has distorted our view of Jesus. And even back into the Old Testament, they had a view of Jesus. It was the coming Messiah they were looking for. And the sin and corruption um, had distorted that view, had led them to this point where they're not faithfully worshiping, they're not faithfully um, seeking, they're not faithfully awaiting the coming of the Messiah who was to be their savior um, and be the atonement for their sins. Um, and they'd, they'd easily gone away from that. So their first relationship um, is the brokenness uh, between them and God. They're not seeking him. They're not desiring him. And remember, this is God's people, people that he's um, chosen to go into a covenant with. Um, if you're a believer, then you know he initiated this relationship um, so this is really um, disheartening to think that the, the people who had been rescued are forgetting the one that had rescued them. Um, there's no respect, as we had talked about in the, the previous weeks of this. There's this lost relationship with God. And then we see that that flows, right? Just as the priest corruption had flowed into the lives of the people, um, the our broken relationship with God will lead to broken relationships with God people as well, like our earthly earthly relationships. And the very first one we see here, um, if we jump back to, to verse 10 of chapter 2, um, where we're at this morning, is, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, verse 10 is going to be the probably the most difficult to, to really break down if you have a commentary or study Bible. It may even note that this is specifically about marriage, um, this verse. We do know that um, right after that, Malachi uh, does get into marriage, um, and it's very clear there. But what's it's not so clear here is whether or not it's just their relationships with people or if it's specifically within the covenant of marriage. Um, but it goes without saying we must address our relationships with other people, not just our spouses. And even to context here, um, if Malachi is not talking about this, we can remember even back to Nehemiah, their ancestors, so not far removed from this, um, how they treated their, their uh, brothers and sisters that were in covenant community with them. You go back to Nehemiah 5, uh, and again, if you weren't with us when we went through Nehemiah, you can find that um, in our recordings as well. But very important to understand this is in Nehemiah 5, we see the corruption with the people when they couldn't even afford grain. They, they couldn't produce grain, couldn't afford it. And then their brothers and sisters, uh, those Israelites, um, were giving them loans um, that were impossible to pay back. And the loan was for something that was a necessity. It was something they needed to put food on their table. So it's not like um, we are saying that um, if you're um, someone who is a... Um, lender, right? You you work at a bank and you give out loans. Uh, maybe that's your job. We're not saying that you are working in a corrupt place doing a corrupt thing, but particularly here, it was those in covenant community with them not able to afford things necessary for living, things necessary for worship, and they were they were abusing that power that they had found themselves in to take advantage of their brothers and sisters and, and have selfish gain. 
And it's a shame because those are people who are in community. And to think about it like this practically for us, we've just come out of a very rough year of 2020, um, a pandemic, stimulus checks, um, a lot of people dying, a lot of people sick. And um, regardless of what side you're on, we understand that um, no matter like how serious or you, you take this or how severe you think it still is, we understand that 2020 was rough, um, not just for one person, but for the people um, of, of the world, um, not just our nation, but the entire world really struggled in that year. So now imagine that struggle is in our church, right, which it is. Um, a lot of people have been affected. And someone comes to you and says, hey, like, I just need a meal tonight um, to just feed my kids. Um, and that's all I need. And you say, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. Um, so I'm going to go get you a $10 Arby's, $10 Arby's meal for your family. Uh, maybe you got that coupon, the family pack. I love that thing, by the way. Uh, the family pack's legit. It uh, feeds me uh, a ton of food and even has some leftover to feed my kids. So um, I'm just kidding. And you say, I'm going to take this $10 meal and I'm going to charge you $50 over the course of the next two weeks to pay that back. Now, of course, like some of the details can be a little bit different between what I'm saying here and Nehemiah, but ultimately you're taking advantage of not just a person, right, um, which would be wrong anyways, but the people in which God has joined you to by the blood of Jesus. And we are actually called in scriptures to, to love and to care for one another, and then we're not doing those things, and it's it's dishonoring not just to the to the person, but it's dishonoring to God himself. So we actually look and, and get a, a really good picture of this in John 13, verses 34 and 35, where a lot of us are familiar with this passage, but it says here, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus himself is, is telling us that people will know that we are his people, right? The outside world will know that we are the, the children adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ. They'll know who we are, who we represent, um, who we give our allegiance to by the way we love one another. And then we think into this text and even our lives and, and how we mistreat one another. Going back to uh, Malachi, um, there where we are this morning in chapter 2, how how then, why then, why then are we faithless to one another? Look, we've all been made in the image of God, therefore are deserving of respect and, and dignity, right? Um, every person deserves that being made in the Imago Dei. But there's this deeper understanding as believers that we are to care for one another, to be faithful to one another. And that faithfulness means calling each other out in our sin so that we would be restored in our relationship, our understanding of Jesus Christ, that we would put him in the perspective. And that's not always easy, but we understand that as as a church family saved by the grace of God through faith alone, that we are to to hold each other to that standard. And that's not just you holding someone to that standard, that's someone else holding you to that standard. That's um, encouraging one another into um, the word of God, that we would be in it faithfully, encouraging one another into um, right living, encouraging one another, not just in a way of living, but encouraging one another in times of trial and um, and then rejoicing with one another in times of triumph, whatever it might be, but being faithful to one another and not faithless. So though verse 10 may be talking about marriage, it goes without saying we should, it should it should go without saying, but it doesn't, that we should be faithful to one another. 
our relationship with God uh, or our relationship with one another is a reflection of our relationship with God. So when we're mistreating one another, especially within the church context, then it shows that we have a lack of understanding of our relationship with God and his relationship with us, that we understand that we love because he first loved us. So it, it just changes our entire perspective um, when we we know the love of God, and therefore it changes the way that we love one another. And Jesus, again, it 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 must be understood this morning that Jesus says that they will know us by our love for one another. And then it, it goes into marital relationships. Talks about here in verse eleven goes on. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god may the lord cut off all the tent may the lord cut off from the tents of jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the lord of hosts so um we we look here and we read that there's something that's gone on with marriages particularly within god's people and this is something that has been pushed to the side from for churches for so long now is that um, we don't talk about marriage and, and what marriage is and what marriage should be according to God's word. And this was never a biracial, multi-ethnic issue. This was a worship issue that when you marry outside of God's people, you are only going to find yourself in friction, right? That spiritual and fleshly things just collide. They never mesh. So you could take your two hands together, spread out, you know, like you got five fingers spread out like wide, and then you can bring your hands together and they're joined together. As Christians marrying Christians, or even in the Old Testament, Israelites marrying um, other Israelites or people who are worshiping God that have come into the covenant family, then they connect, they join together, right? But if you're marrying outside of that, you can take two fists and try and join them together, but all you get is a punch. And you can hear that maybe in my knuckles right now. And it, it's that's all that you get when spiritual things meet fleshly things. They're not meant to mesh. They're meant to collide for our good and for God's glory, that God would be honored. Now, when we, we do these things, it, when, when I say don't marry someone who's not a Christian, it's not so that I'm, I'm keeping you from enjoying um, something, right? It's that I want you to enjoy it in its proper context and therefore be more blessed than you ever would. And I'm not saying that if you get married to someone who's not a believer and you are a believer that you're going to end up divorced. But I know that you're going to have a lifetime of trial um, full of error, full of heartache, full of heartbreak. And that may not mean that, that your marriage, even to the outside world, feels horrible but you're going to sleep every night with someone who is not worshiping the same God, has no interest, and ultimately, if they do not know Christ by the end of their life, will end up separated from him for eternity. Now, that's like a really difficult thing to grasp. So even your spouse may not feel that, that struggle you feel, but you're going to be pulled your entire life. And that's what has happened here, is that their relationship with God has distorted their relationship or lack of relationship with God, rather, has distorted their relationship with people and with one another, their spouses. And it's a shame. And that's something we see even within divorce ourselves. Being a, a child who, who witnessed my parents go through a divorce, I saw that that relationship, as it ended, it wasn't just that relationship that was affected. It was my dad 
seeing relationships with those he once called family affected. Some of them come to an end. It was my mom with the same thing. Friendships were not the same. Friendships were divided. Houses were divided. People were split. People were hurt. And and you think about it, you're like, oh, well, those two people just end. But it affects each and every person around it. It doesn't just affect the kids. We, we oftentimes think it's just those under that house and that roof that are affected but it goes on to affect our way of living, our way of life, our perspective of life. And the same should be said about our relationship with God. A right relationship with God will change the way that we interact and have relationships with other people, from our friendships to our spouses to our church, whatever it might be. But it changes um, who we are and how we view things when we have a right understanding of God. And you see, their sin has not only affected their relationships, but it's also affected their repentance. Point number two, repentance. They've gone into um, a wrong understanding of repentance. It's not true. It's not right. Um, You see this in verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now it's crazy when we think like God's not accepting the offering, but there's a reason for this. And I prepared uh, this message and immediately um, what came to mind was how children do this a lot. Like they say sorry, but they don't know what sorry means. They don't really mean that they're sorry, but they know that they're supposed to say sorry. So they don't feel the weight of what they did wrong or the weight of their sin. They just understand that if I'm going to get out of trouble, this is the process that I must follow. And I was trying to think of like the um, most interesting time or the best time that you guys would get a kick out of um, to mention Maylee and her um, depravity, um, per se, uh, that that would help us to to see that she didn't care. Uh, but, but as I was thinking this, Maylee comes into the the living room crying um, and saying she didn't mean to do something, didn't mean to do something, didn't mean to do something. I said, "What did you do?" She said, "I jumped on the couch." And I said, "Are you sorry?" And she says, "Yes." And I was like, "Maylee, you're not sorry. Like you do it all the time. Like you you aren't sorry. You don't care. You just know that you were going to get in trouble. Your mom had caught you." And she immediately stopped crying, and I realized that the tears were in vain. They weren't real. She was putting on a show. And that's what's happened here. And they're not just simply crying. It says that they're covering the Lord's altar with tears because he no longer accepts their offering. Now, a natural follow-up question there would be, why doesn't he accept the offering? There's got there's got to be reason, right? There's got to be a reason that I tell Maylee, like, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I don't think you're really sorry. You don't just say something like that, right? When, when a child's crying, you don't just like rub it in their face and like, you know, beat them down. There's got to be reason. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? They want to know that very reason. And it continues on because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of their spirit of the spirit and their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Okay? So God has witnessed what has happened. And don't don't be mistaken. Um, it's not just about marriage. Um, this can apply to all areas of our life. And it's also not just applicable to the Old Testament. It's not just applicable to those who were in the Bible, those characters that we read about, the, the people who lived and, um, and we witnessed their lives and see their lives uh, play out through the scriptures. 
this is applicable to us too. It's so easy to fall into this routine to laugh at the the people mentioned in the Bible and Peter, how he denied Jesus. Like, I would never do that. Well, Peter said that too, right? And if we're honest and we look at our life and even the actions maybe um, leading up to us listening to this message or leading up to Sunday on church or maybe the morning um, coming to church, we can see areas of our life where we've been disobedient and we thought that God wouldn't see it. Because we can hide our sin from those around us, even spouses, right? The, the people that we, we are closer to um, in our physical life than anyone else. And we think, ah, because I can hide these things from them. I can hide these things from God. But the thing is, is God knows our heart. And not only like, and by God knowing our heart, he knows our intent. So we can do things outwardly that, that look good, right? If you saw someone weeping on the altar and, 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 God not receiving that from them and or their offering um, or their repentance, um, then we would think like, wow, like something's wrong with God. But truthfully, God knows the intent. And that's what God's been changing um, since the beginning of time, since the fall, is changing our hearts, which is inevitably changing our intent. Not that we would do things that look outwardly good, but that we would do them in a God-honoring, Christ-centered way so that God would be glorified. But they're doing these things. Their repentance is in vain. Their their tears are in vain. They do not mean um, what they're doing, right? But there's a fix. What is the fix? The fix is to refrain, point number three, to refrain from these sins, to truly repent. But repentance is turning away. There was never any turning away. It was always falling back, falling back, falling back. But here we see that they are to refrain. Verse 15, the second part of it, um, like halfway through, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves and your spirit and do not be faithless. We get two of these guard statements that that we are to guard ourselves. And that means true repentance, right? Turning away from and, and confronting that sin all right, to confront it, not to run from it, not to repent when you, you feel good. It's a week after you committed that, that vile act and you're like, hey, now I feel okay. I'll just tell God, sorry, and we'll just move on to on from this, right? No, we would confront our sin, right? We would repent of our sin and we would begin to refrain from our sin. And that comes from guarding ourselves, being in the scriptures, being sanctified by truth. God's word is truth. John 17, 17, Jesus says, that very thing, be sanctified by truth. God's word is indeed truth, church. So we are to refrain. We are to turn from. And to see true spiritual change, we must pursue God and refrain from living according um, to the flesh. It goes back to point number one, that we would, we would live in communion, right? We would have a right relationship with God. We would be putting Jesus into perspective. There's no other way to do this. We cannot do it on our own. So we must seek that relationship first. We must, from that, have true repentance because of who we understand Christ to be and what we understand Christ to have done on our behalf. And again, all we're ever going to get from faithless living is tasteless 
fruit. No one likes tasteless fruit. No one would, would love to, to walk up to a, a, an apple tree and just know that, hey, I'm going to take a bite of this tasteless apple and get nothing. There, it's not juicy. It's not good. But I'm just going to take a bite of it and just love it. No, you would you would take a bite of the apple, say it has no taste or it has horrible taste, and you're going to throw it across the yard, right? Like we all love chucking apples. Like when they're bad, you just love to just launch them as far as you can throw them. With spiritual fruit, there is no chucking of it, right? We are to bear good fruit. We are to bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? We are to do the things in which Christ has called us to do. We are to live like Christ lived. And when we understand that relationship with God, that our sin was imputed unto Christ on the cross, he took our sin and imputed his righteousness to us. That changes the way that we live, and that leads us to um, living faithfully and producing righteous fruit. Not to, to make your head big and your chest puff out, but that Christ would be honored in the way that we live, and the world would be great, greatly, they would greatly benefit from it. They would be the beneficiaries of the way that we live, because we live like Christ.